American freedom is secured by the commitment of our courts and our people to the rule of law. National Review's The McCarthy Report offers listeners in-depth analysis on the most pressing legal questions facing the country. Alongside National Review Editor-in-Chief Rich Lowry, veteran prosecutor and law professor Andy McCarthy leverages his decades of legal experience to cut through the noise of media hysteria with sober-minded, thoughtful commentary. Tune in to The McCarthy Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to episode 49 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. This one with me, Charles C.W. Cook. I've called this one the 49th episode because there have been 48 others before it. The next one will be 50, and after that, 51. But then I may do something completely different. I may channel some alternative methods of knowing and mix it up a bit. Episode Hagricon or season finance or, you know. So a quick programming note. To celebrate episode 50 next week, I intend to have a gender reveal party. I think it's a boy. But I've deliberately not found out. If it is a boy, the next episode will be in blue. If it's not a boy, it'll be in pink. So please make sure to adjust your aft chronotron impulser, or you won't get the full effect. Tech support will be available on the day between 1am and 2am, except in Nebraska. But note that we won't be able to help you if you don't properly notate your nanowave pulse signatures, and if you're listening on a player with one of the original anomalous dorsal shells, you'll have to listen in black and white, sorry. My guest this week is Russ Roberts, the president of Shalem College in Jerusalem and the host of the Econ Talk podcast. Russ, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Great to be with you. All right. Well, I want to talk about economics and classical liberalism. But before we do, I must ask you about Israel, where you now live, obviously, Israel has been in the news since October 7th. You aren't from Israel. So before we get to what life has been like since then, when did you move there and why? My wife and I moved here in June of 2021. I was offered the job as president of Shalem College. I was at the time a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. I still am. But I took that job, uh, and we moved here in uh, the, toward the tail end of the worst of COVID, and became Israeli citizens. And our life changed in all kinds of ways, as you might expect. That sounds quite fast to become a citizen. In America, it takes at least five years. How long did it take? I, it took uh, something like six months. Israel is famous for its bureaucracy being difficult, but if you're Jewish, uh, you have to be able to show that, which is not straightforward. You have to show you're not a criminal, and they're pretty eager to give you citizenship if you can prove those things easily, which which was easy enough. There are some tricky parts. Uh, we did get to taste some of the bureaucracy, but as Israelis born here like to point out, becoming an American citizen is not easy. It's not just the time. It, there's a bureaucracy there, too. So um, we did that. How has life changed in Jerusalem since October 7th? What, what are the differences? So I would just first say that, you know, coming here, having visited Israel many times as a tourist, living here is, of course, uh, maybe not of course, but living here is very different. You get to experience what it's like to be an immigrant. You have an alien culture that you're not totally familiar with or you're totally unfamiliar with at times. And that was our life. It's incredibly exciting to lead Shalem College, which is a 
it's an unusual college. No one here in Israel teaches the way we do or teaches what we do. We have a core curriculum. We believe in reading books in close study with other people in small seminars. Uh, this makes us unusual, of course, to the United States as well or anywhere in the world. And, uh, you know, life was was very good here, very purposeful, being the head of, of the college. It's a very meaningful place here in general, Israel is. And October 7th was a huge, obviously a huge change in, in all kinds of ways. So I'll start with that day. That day was a Saturday. It was a Jewish holiday called Simchat Torah, which is a celebration of finishing the annual cycle of reading the five books of Moses. It's a joyous day. And early that morning, we heard air raid sirens go off. We headed to bomb shelters, and um, that happened four or five times, maybe three or four times here in the city of Jerusalem. It was happening much more frequently for people closer to Gaza. Jerusalem is about 50 miles from Gaza. A rocket launched from there. The siren goes off. You have about 90 seconds to get to cover. If you're close to Gaza, you might get 20 seconds to get to cover. And a lot of people in those areas closer to Gaza throw themselves on the ground and hope for the best. The atrocities of October 7th, the, the murder, the rape, the pillaging, and the worst of all, I think for most of us, the delight that the perpetrators had in recording those moments really has shaken this country up in, in, in many ways. Uh, it's produced a remarkable resolve to reduce the chance of that happening again. There's a great deal of mourning and grief there's fear. And at the same time, there's an unimaginable, unless you're here, an unimaginable pulling together of the country, a country that had been split apart rather badly by the issue of judicial reform before October 7th, suddenly, literally in one day, one afternoon, in one moment became an incredibly unified country where people did extraordinary things to help each other, obviously militarily, but also socially, culturally, food, shelter, kindness, counseling, amazing civil society response. And then with the kidnapping of about 240 Israelis and and other nationals, that has also galvanized the country in all kinds of emotional and physical ways. There are posters here, of course, of all the victims. They're all around Jerusalem. They're all around Tel Aviv. Uh, they don't get torn down here um, the way they do in other parts of the world. And uh, they're really very present. Uh, we're very aware that our children and our loved ones are um, in harm's way and not who are not soldiers. And of course, the last few days, we're recording this at the end of November, the last few days have seen a pause in the war and the return of hostages, kidnapped, abducted children, mostly children, women, and elderly from Gaza and the freeing of uh, Palestinian prisoners who have been convicted of terrorism. And that's where we're at. It's a very uh, strange moment right now. But to come back to the literal question you asked of life here, it's pretty normal. Uh, we haven't had an air raid siren for a few weeks. It's a little quieter around town. Uh, there aren't as many tourists. And people, I think, are uh, many, of course, are off at the war either in Gaza or at the north, uh, concerned about Hezbollah or guarding the West Bank. Israel's sort of fighting three fronts right now. It's a very tough time. So it's going to be a very interesting next few weeks and months. We'll see what happens. The world's going to react as well and um, hoping for the best. Were you shocked by it? Or did you move there thinking something like this could easily happen? Well, I shouldn't be shocked by it. It's Life here has been somewhat tenuous since uh, 1948 when the state was established. I do remember walking around Jerusalem, which is a beautiful city, thinking what an amazing moment in Jewish history this is that we have the city that we have prayed for, longed for, wanted to be part of our, be in our lives for 2,000 years since um, the Roman conquest of Jerusalem and the destruction of the, the temple in Jerusalem. And here it is. It's a beautiful day. We can walk freely. We can build an incredible country. This place is obviously a miraculous place in so many ways beyond the spiritual. It's got an incredible high-tech sector. 
It's got an incredible culture of family. It's very children-oriented, Israel is, and family-oriented. And so I like to say that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Eternal vigilance is not really part of the human toolkit. We look away, we get complacent, we get overconfident. So the failure on October 7th to anticipate and prepare for and even notice for a while what happened, the invasion, is sort of unexpected and sort of par for the course. It's what happens to human beings. They think they've put everything in place and life is secure, but it rarely is. All right, let's talk a little bit about liberty. You are the host of the Econ Talk podcast, which has been a smashing success. And you started that a long time before podcasts became ubiquitous. Why? This is a meta question to ask you this on a podcast, but what <clears throat> prompted you to get into podcasting so early? The answer is, is that I was late into blogging. I started to write with Don Boudreau, George Mason, a blog at Cafe Hayek. I left it years ago. Don still writes there. But I, we were pretty late. A lot of bloggers had already been started, had blogs had already been started. They had generated audiences. And I thought, when I got invited to be on a podcast, I thought, well, this might be the next thing. And I don't want to be late to this. So I'm going to jump in. Uh, the podcast I was on, I remember being told it had two to 3,000 downloads per episode. And I thought, wow. If I could go to the front of an auditorium that had 3,000 seats that were filled with people interested in hearing my conversation with somebody, I'd go to that auditorium every Monday morning happily. So I thought, I'm going to try this. I didn't have a plan at first of how long the episodes would be or how frequently I would do them. You can see that in the early days. But after a while, I hit on a what I thought was a reliable format, which I thought listeners would appreciate, meaning they wanted the regularity of it. It, it comes out every Monday at 6.30 a.m. Eastern. It's once a week, and it goes for an hour, a little over an hour. And occasionally, it goes a little more than a little over an hour. Sometimes it goes an hour and 25 or an hour and 40, but that's unusual. It's usually a few minutes over an hour, and it comes out every Monday. And I, at the first, I thought, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can create a podcast, an hour of conversation every Monday. And a lot of people said, and you'll run out of people to interview because how many interesting economists are there who write for a general audience and can talk about their work? But I figured out pretty early on, you can ask some people more than once. My most frequent guest is Mike Munger at Duke University. I think I've had him on 45 times. I found out that there are a lot of economists writing interesting things. And then I realized I don't have to only talk to economists, even though the title's Econ Talk. And then I realized that uh, around 2016 or so, 2017, I was a lot less interested in economics than I used to be. And so now economics is a frequent topic of econ talk, but it's not necessarily uh, the dominant topic. And I've lost some listeners from that and gained others. And the show is pretty much what I'm interested in. Why are you less interested in economics than you used to be? Um, well... I'll, I'll use Bitcoin as an example. I have listeners, a small hearty band of listeners who would like to hear a Bitcoin episode pretty much every week. <laughs> yeah, they're always sending me suggestions for Bitcoin experts I should talk to. They send me um, topics in Bitcoin I should I should think about. And uh, I don't know, I've probably done eight episodes on Bitcoin, maybe 10. We've done some. This may sound arrogant. I don't mean it to be. I'll try to footnote that and explain that. I've learned pretty much all about Bitcoin that I want to learn. Uh, there's more to learn, but I don't find that it's so interesting. And I think I've learned the important things. And I've learned what I don't know. And that ignorance is not something I want to eliminate. There are more important things I, I want to learn about. So I've learned something. I assume my listeners have learned alongside me. And now I want to learn about something else. And similarly, in economics, uh, you know, I don't know how many episodes I've done on monetary economics and inflation, and well, let's take the financial crisis. I, I probably done thirty five, did probably thirty plus episodes on the financial crisis, different aspects of it, different theories. And then someone would say, "Well, why don't you interview so and so? He's got a perfect explanation of fill in the blank, monetary theory, the financial crisis, some complex area of economics." And I've learned a lot about 
the financial crisis. I've learned a lot about monetary economics. I've also learned there's an enormous gaps in that knowledge, things I don't know about, but I'm not convinced there's somebody who can close those gaps reliably. So I don't really want to hear their pet theory about monetary theory or Bitcoin or the financial crisis because I'm not really likely to be convinced by it. I'm not sure I'm going to learn anything. And so I know what I know. There's a bunch of things I know I don't know. That's very, very important. That's why, you know, I hope this doesn't sound arrogant. I don't mean it to be arrogant. But the things I know about economics uh, are very important. And the things I don't know, many of them, I'm sure there's some holes I could still fill. And I do still talk to economists. But a lot of what purports to be novel or final or complete, uh, I tend to be unexcited about. I'll give you another example. There's a bunch of books that get written every year about that explain all of human history. I used to love those kind of books. Uh, I'm not going to name any examples, but listeners will probably think of some. And you can learn something from those books. What you won't learn is a single theory of human history, which yeah. is often what the author is selling. Uh, you won't learn that that theory is correct. You'll learn that that a creative person can cram a bunch of stuff into that theory ex post after the fact and Mm, some of it's convincing, most of it's not, but it's thought-provoking and it might be worth reading, but many of them are not worth reading. They're just, you know, one more genre that I'll stop. So a whole another set of books that take studies from psychology and other social sciences to give you a new way of looking at the world. Some of those are extraordinary. They change the way you look at the world. Others are just, well, they're made up. The, the studies are not reliable. The studies can't be replicated. They're treated like they're science. That drives me nuts. Uh, and I don't really want to try to explain to every author why the things they think and claim are so reliable actually aren't. And therefore, what are they left with? Um, storytelling. And storytelling is interesting. I, I like that. I do a lot of it myself and I like to listen to it, but there's a limit. So, Yeah, in a sense, that's less arrogant than it is humble. I think anyone who comes to the world with a single explanation of everything ought to be instinctively mistrusted. But it's so exciting because when you have that tool, oh my gosh, it's wonderful. You can you can explain everything and you fit everything into it. And when it doesn't quite fit, you can convince yourself that that little exceptional piece over there, it really probably might not even be true. So it's okay. And you know, we love human beings. We love certainty. Yeah. We love orderly explanations. Uh, as Ed Lemer says, the econometrician at UCLA, interviewed him a number of times, he says, man is a pattern-seeking, storytelling animal, and we are. So these books that I'm poking light fun at, they take a bunch of patterns, they try to weave them into a single narrative, and then they tell a story, and we are suckers for that. We love that, and I'm, I'm no different. I love those stories too, but after a while, I just get a little tired of them because... Um, can't all be right. But you're not <laughs> entirely agnostic. You would describe yourself as a classical liberal. You like free markets. You like small government. Correct. Why? Uh, which part? Why do I believe those things or why do I keep those views despite my uncertainty? <laughs> well, both. I assume they're related. If you thought that free markets, small government, classical liberalism didn't work at all, I assume you, you wouldn't keep it. Um. I like to think that's true about me. I think most of us have lots of views that are probably not true at all, but we hold on to them for a whole variety of reasons. And we don't like to have them tested or examined too frequently. It's too painful. So we have a whole, all of us as human beings have views that we keep uh, close and uncorrupted. Some of them are true. Some of them are not true. The ones that are not true tend to not have costs or we will eventually discard them. They are beliefs about God, or they're not being a God, or about an economic system where you know, you're holding those views, don't really, if they're wrong, don't really come at much of a cost. The cost is usually having to ignore certain types of evidence maybe that would make you uncomfortable. But we're really good at that as human beings, at discarding those things, ignoring them, justifying why they shouldn't be taken too seriously. So when I ask myself, why do I hold the views I do, uh, given that perspective, you know, I would say um, I like the line, strong opinions weakly held. 
I have strong opinions about the role of government, about the power of markets. As I've gotten older, I'm less dogmatic, but I still lean, you know, pretty strongly in those directions. Um, but I'm aware that my views aren't quite as ironclad in terms of the empirical evidence that I thought when I was younger. And I've given up a lot of views that that are not quite as core as those views, say, on human rationality. Uh, when I came out of graduate school, I believed that people were rational. They learned from their mistakes, and there's some truth to that. But I found uh, when things diverged from that viewpoint, I would find ways to dismiss that those that evidence. And now I'm more likely to embrace it. I'm more willing to see uh, mistakes as more uh, common, as human frailty is more common. Uh, I think it's harder for us to learn from our mistakes. It takes longer than I may have originally thought. And uh, I have a richer, less comforting, but perhaps more accurate view of the human circus. I couldn't point to what evidence or knowledge produced that viewpoint, although occasionally I can. Occasionally I could realize that things I used to believe in my youth, I don't I don't believe anymore because eventually it just came, it was just too hard to continue to believe something that didn't seem to be true. So I, I do think we learn. I do think we consume evidence carefully, over, carefully is not the right word, cautiously over time. Nobody would, I think, be foolish enough to con- convince themselves that they've been wrong because of a single study. But, you know, a dozen studies don't all, sometimes don't dent our confidence. We can explain why they're wrong. They're poorly done. It's a very funny world, the world of social science. Truth is elusive. It's, um, it's complicated. So speaking of complicated and Strong Views Weekly held, I want to ask you about the concept of deserving which I think operates as a stand-in for a lot of the philosophical disagreements that we have in our politics and our economics. In your view, how much do I deserve what I have? How much of what I have achieved is due to me and my efforts and my decisions and my virtues, and how much of it is the result of all manner of other factors that I didn't control and I, I couldn't control? That's um, it is an important question. I have a strange take on it, I think. It's not the normal take. The normal take is uh, there are two sides to that issue. One of you says you don't deserve much because many people before you have built the institutions that you benefit from. This view is particularly widespread on the left. It says that you didn't build it it was the roads, the education system, the constitutional order, all these things allow an entrepreneur, say, in the United States to be successful. And it is an illusion that your hard work and creativity and innovative spirit are the source of your success. That's on the left. On the right, the standard view is no effort, grit, intelligence, reliability, character. These are the essential elements of success, and without them, uh, you cannot succeed. And so you deserve a lot of credit for what you have achieved, and you should be proud of it. I, I have a different take. I-, I-, I concede much of the left's view. I wrote a long, very long essay on this. I argued that I have a huge component that, of my success that I should not take credit for. I deserve no credit for it. I was born with a certain genetic makeup. I was born into a household uh, that was loving with two parents. I was born in a loving household of two parents that raised me to honor learning and reading as the highest virtues, as well as kindness. I deserve no credit for any of that. We talked earlier about econ talk. I was born at a time when when I was younger, the way you could get someone to listen to your voice would be to burn a CD if you were lucky to live in the time of CDs and distribute it through the mail. Uh, I remember the days when that was a common way to reach other people. It doesn't work very well. It's very expensive. Uh, you don't reach many people. Very few people are able to reach many people that way. But I was lucky enough to be born and live at a time when podcasting is possible which is basically any person can have their own radio station. 
that's an amazing blessing that I deserve no credit for. Do I do it well? I don't know. I try. Is my success at it mine versus my parents versus my teachers? Fill in the blank. So I concede that my success is somewhat due, if not a lot due, to a combination of luck, good genes. And by the way, if you say, well, but I'm very determined and I work very hard, that's true. I think I work pretty hard. But that's also part of my genetic makeup and my the nurture alongside the nature that I received from my parents and the people around me. So really, do I deserve anything that I have? You could say, no, I don't. But where I disagree with the left, and the reason I'm not a, um, a socialist, is that I don't think their reaction to that reality is the right reaction. So yeah, I have- that's what I was going to ask. What do we do about the bit we don't yeah. deserve is the obvious question. So, so the left's conclusion from that analysis is, well, since I don't deserve what I have, I shouldn't be allowed to have it. I accept the justice of that. I don't disagree with that. What I disagree with is, is the idea that the mechanisms that the left would use to distribute what is taken from me will lead to a better world. It doesn't seem to. There are very few socialist or communist paradises in practice. They can argue, well, we didn't do it right. It's always a possibility. But I would go be stronger in reacting to it and say that the very idea that success belongs to the collective is a destructive idea to any self-determination and autonomy and agency I might be able to manage for myself. And worse, the distribution of that largesse taken from the wealthy would not necessarily be used in a good way. Um, now we're in the middle of a war here in Israel. Uh, I think it's a fact. I'm, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I'm pretty sure that two of the most important, if not more, leaders of Hamas are in Qatar, and that they're billionaires. Now, maybe they're not really billionaires. Maybe they're only millionaires, but they're wealthy. Uh, it's pretty clear to me that they have taken the aid that the West has provided in hopes of helping the Palestinian people and kept it for themselves because they can. And um, historically, giving people the power to extract resources from other people doesn't turn out well. You need some accountability. Hamas doesn't have any. They're a thugocracy. But if we think about, say, the United States, which is a somewhat healthy democracy, we could debate how healthy it is, but it's certainly more democratic than many forms of government and more representative than many forms of government that exist in today's world or in human history. Do they spend the money well that they have taken in the form of taxes? And I would say, mixed bag. Uh, you know, it's true they don't line their own pockets. Some do, but they don't do it in a grotesque way that I'm accusing Hamas of doing. They don't uh, take almost all of it. They um, they take a little bit off the top, but they do distribute it. Uh, it hasn't turned out so well. They haven't. I, w I would argue that that the budget of the United States is not spent very effectively. The government. Uh, the government spending is not spent very effectively. I would say that's true here in Israel as well. That also has a large public sector. So we could debate till the cows come home about my personal justification of keeping my stuff that I have been paid to produce. But I think the idea that somehow an elite group of either experts or representatives will spend it in a way that will make the world a better place justified by my lack of uh, deservedness, I think is a, an illusion. That's quite a fatalistic worldview. Some people love markets. They will lionize them, both because they think that they reward people who are virtuous and because they think that they create this dynamism and this wealth. You're essentially saying that a great deal of the outcomes that we see are cosmically unjust, the product of factors beyond individuals' control, but the trying to fix it doesn't work. Yeah, well, I, but I can see, I don't mean to overstate the case. I'm bending over backwards to give the yeah. redistributive viewpoint it's due. Okay. Um, I do think that people respond to incentives. If you take lots of money away from people, they will not work as hard as they would otherwise. So 
when I say that I don't deserve the fact that I work very hard is not justification for me keeping all my money. I recognize that how hard I work, even though it is a genetic and cultural artifact that I am not entitled to take credit for, I do respond to incentives. So I don't mean to suggest that the world would be unchanged by that effort. So it's not merely uh, an injustice that taking away people's resources in large amounts and redistributing them or spending them through a democratic process is a failure. I think it is also uh, going to change the amount that people work, what they actually produce. And I can, I think I can speak to the glories of the market happily without, <laughs> without apology. So I didn't mean to overstate okay. the uh, fatalism that I, that I said there. That was partly rhetorical. Part of your work, both with the Econ Talk podcast and in your writing, is didactic. You are known for explaining economics to people and boiling down complicated concepts into comprehensible form. What, in your estimation, is the biggest misconception about free markets that you encounter? Or put another way, what's the most difficult thing about free markets to convey or explain to people who aren't already well-versed in economic theory? A couple things come to mind. I think many people see the world as a zero-sum game, that if you are to benefit, it must come at someone's expense. And I think that's false. And explaining why it's false is a crucial form of economic education you know, obviously the world is an immensely more productive place, a wealthier place, a higher material standard of living than it was 100 years ago, 500 years ago, or 1,000 years ago. So how did that happen if the world's a zero-sum game? Where did we take it from? Mars? No. We got wealthier because we figured out more effective ways to combine resources with human creativity. So that is not a zero-sum game. Growth can allow everyone to be better off. And through human history, there's an enormous transformation of, of the standard of living. That factual matter is not well understood, nor is the mechanism of, of productivity that I just described as well. So I think one of the most fundamentally important aspects of economic education is appreciating those two things. The world today versus 100 years ago is radically different in a material way. And the reason has to do with increased innovation and creativity and how we combine human ability with physical items. So that would be one. The second thing I would say is uh, the power of competition. So I think it's easy to forget how changes in the rules of the game, change incentives, and therefore change outcomes. I'll give you a strange example, perhaps, of what I've been thinking about lately, which is the marketplace for news or ideas or information, the, um, the media. When I was growing up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there were three networks, CBS, ABC, and NBC. There was public broadcasting. There was a local newspaper. There was a few. There were a few local radio stations. They mainly played pop songs, classical music, and that was the information landscape. If you wanted more information, you'd go to a library and you'd physically look at a book. Maybe you'd take some microfilm out and look at older books that were harder to catalog and and stand up in physical form. But that was it. And that world started to fall apart with the advent of cable television. Cable television creates. Uh, CNN eventually creates Fox News, it creates C-SPAN, creates ESPN, it creates 24-7 broadcasting that adds to the competitive landscape because all of a sudden you have more choices. And then social media comes along, which expands that by a factor of a zillion. We can suddenly curate our stream of knowledge and information to match what our viewpoints are, if that's what we want, or it's possible turns out rare, but it's possible to use that expanded set of opportunities to get smarter and to learn more about what's actually going on. But most of us don't want to do that. We want to treat the news the way we treat shoes. I want a comfortable pair. I, 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 don't, want to, I, don't, I don't want to consume news that makes me uncomfortable. Why would I want to do that? 
well, because it's true. Uh, no, 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 no. Just give me something that makes me feel better, either that makes me feel like my views are right or that the other people's views on the other side are wrong. That's what I want. Give me that. And you can have that now. You couldn't have that in 1973 or 1981, but now you can have it if you want. You can consume all day long things that reinforce your, your biases, your, your ideology, your partisan viewpoint. And the only thing you'll see about the other side either mocks it or treats it as evil. That is a insane world, the world we live in. And I think it's underappreciated. The incentives of what that does, again, this is what an economist is trained to think about, that changes the incentives of how you report the news, not just that's what consumers want. If you are nuanced and thoughtful and objective, you're going to struggle to have listeners, readers, and viewers. You're going to go out of business. <laughs> so you got to do what the consumer wants in the marketplace for ideas. And that competitive landscape radically changes, not just, oh, well, some newspapers are going to struggle to stay in business. It's going to change what people report, who they hire, how they treat and reward them. And uh, that's the world we live in. And it's uh, a crazy world. So those two things, and that's, by the way, also true for more standard forms of human consumption and economic activity. Competition is an extraordinary weapon. It's usually for the good. I think in the case of news, it's a little bit hard to argue it's for the good. But in most cases, it leads to innovation and people pleasing the consumer. It does that too in news. It's just that pleasing the consumer doesn't do what we like to think news does, which is to make people wiser and better informed. Turns out it's not, I don't think, necessarily true. And the struggle to convey that second point to people is that they want what they want. They want what they want. And it's hard if you're not trained in economics. It's very hard to understand how competition feeds back into the incentives of the players in the game, which in turn creates certain outcomes. Uh, just take a simple example. It kind of dovetails with the first example of zero-sum game. If you don't understand competition, it's very easy to believe that you're always being exploited by the people who sell you stuff. But if you think about competition and you look at it, especially dynamically over time, you can see that competition often leads to better and better provision of goods and services at cheaper and cheaper prices once you correct for inflation, which makes it harder to see because of inflation. But if you correct for inflation, you see that standard of livings are rising steadily. Why is that? Well, it's because competition unleashes, profit motive unleashes uh, an urge to make the customer happy as long as there's competition. If there's not competition, the provider of stuff can exploit consumers often. And so competition, it, it, the power of it, which is you know, it's woven into Adam Smith's great an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, but it's not something you can see because you can't see competition. You can see that there's maybe more than one seller, but you can't see what it does. And you know, the example I like is the baker gets up at 4.30 in the morning for you to have fresh bread, not because the baker likes you. The baker does that because if the bread's not fresh, you'll shop somewhere else. That ability to shop somewhere else is a game changer, and it's not always obvious because you can't see it. Now, Walter Williams, great economist, uh, used to say, uh, here's my relationship with my grocery. I'm not going to tell them what I want. I'm not going to tell them how much I'm going to buy. I'm not going to tell them when I'm coming. But if I, don't, if I show up and they don't have it, I fire them. And that opportunity to fire them is because there's competition. And because of that, the threat of firing means that there's stuff on the shelves almost all the time. And that's a miracle we don't appreciate. That idea, which is embedded in the concept of emergent order, which is at the heart of the insights of Hayek and Adam Smith, I think that is the single most powerful idea that isn't obvious alongside the zero-sum game. So, uh, Took me a while to get to the right answer, but I think that that'll do. This is probably impossible to answer, but do you have any insight into how many people in, say, the United States as a percentage understand that this isn't a zero-sum game? I mean, how widespread is this problem? We don't know the number, of course, and, and to understand it is, is hard to define it's not enough to agree with it. It, it, would be an, it would really require you to 
apply the concept when it came along and it was important to remember it. So while we can't pick the absolute number, we know something about the number of people who understand it, which is it's small. Most people don't think that way. Most people have not been trained in economics. People have been trained in economics don't always absorb the lessons that I'm talking about. And surely there are people who think I've exaggerated their importance and therefore it's not necessarily that uh, significant. But a better way I would think about it is, you know, what's the level of, let's call it economic literacy. It would include these things we've been talking about. It might include some other things. I mentioned in passing about correcting for inflation. Most people haven't thought very carefully about that. They just think things get more expensive and that must be bad. They have trouble remembering, we human beings have trouble remembering that if prices go up, but wages go up by more, we're actually better off even though things are more expensive. Oh, I thought more expensive is bad. Well, it's not if wages and salaries are higher by more than enough uh, to compensate for that, depending on what you buy and how much you're paid. So these are concepts that just don't come naturally to most people, just like many concepts in intellectual life abstractions don't come naturally. You have to be, you have to read about them, listen to other people talk about them. So how many people in the United States say understand that? Uh, it's probably, it might be less than 5%, might be less than 10. It's not half for sure. The other question I think would be interesting would be, well, is it significant that they don't understand it? Well, it's a little pretty significant. It changes how they vote. Because of that, it changes how politicians present good policy or their own viewpoints. You know, economic literacy is useful to a society. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on teaching people economics in high school. I don't think that's done particularly well. It's usually done in um, the form of teaching people about the stock market, which is really only a very tiny part of economics, if at all, in the way it's usually taught in high school. College economics tends to be taught very mathematically. The, the intuitions that we're talking about right now don't usually spring forth from a mathematical understanding, but rather a different kind of understanding. So it's a small number. In a way, it's a miracle that that economics in the United States is somewhat free market. I don't think it's because people understand economics. I think they have a prejudice, a certain, and I use that word as a, in a positive way, yeah. they have a certain comfort or fundamental belief that capitalism is good. Where does that come from? Oh, I was going to say, I'm not sure I know where it comes from. I don't think most of us could explain where it comes from. Plenty of people have it who've never, take, who've never taken an economics class in their life. If you ask them, they'd say, well, uh, I don't know. Entrepreneurship seems good. Starting businesses, there's uh, a lot of that in America. We have a vibrant economy, and therefore it must be because we're somewhat capitalist. Not a bad argument. There's something to it. I think that's a lot of probably what is underlying many people's views. It may be simply that they see that as something distinctively American. They're proud of their country. They think it's a pretty good place to live. In a similar way, people in England think that the National Health Service is a fabulous medical system. It's not. It has some advantages over the American system, but it has a lot of disadvantages. But people in England don't feel that, think about it. In fact, they're very comfortable with the idea that their system is much better. Uh, so we hold lots of views like that, I think, that are cultural, that are not easily justified. Some of them stand the test of time. Some of them don't. Yeah. Pe people in England with the National Health Service are completely irrational in that they simultaneously will complain about it till the cows come home, say that it's terrible <laughs> and underfunded and that it takes 10 years to get a hip replacement. But it's the best system in the world. And don't you dare change anything about it or you're And people in America, the they'll tell me. They break an arm. They could have a bone sticking out of their body, but they no one will take care of them. They're just going to let be left to rot and die in the street. So you know, there's <laughs> there's a lot of um, mythology around these national things, and our economy and our economic system is is one of those. It's a in America, it has a certain mythic aspect to it that, of course, is not fully true in either the level of capitalism or its results. When we're talking about healthcare, it drives me insane when people say, well, it's obvious that that markets are horrible. I mean, look at healthcare. I'm thinking, well, we haven't tried a market solution in healthcare forever. Uh, in the last 70, 60 to 70 years in America, we've steadily moved away from market forces and toward top-down government-imposed healthcare. And yeah, it doesn't work very well. But don't tell me that that's the problem of the market. We gave up on that decades ago. 
there's some market aspects and private aspects to, to U.S. healthcare, but it's a terrible system. And it has very little to do with free markets or capitalism. Just because some people make profits in it does not mean it's a capitalist healthcare system or a free market healthcare system. It's absurd. Right. People make profits in the French healthcare system, but that's not free market in the slightest. Why do you describe yourself as a classical liberal rather than a libertarian? Um, well, it's probably a little bit dishonest. I don't think most people don't know what a classical liberal is and what they think libertarian is, isn't me. So <laughs> I figure I got a better shot if I pick something they can at least say, well, what's that? They know what a liberal is, or they used to, and it's gotten harder too in the 2023, just like conservative means something not so obvious compared to what it meant say 20 years ago. But, you know, a liberal people have an understanding of what that means. A classical liberal is a reference to an earlier time when liberals were people who believed in freedom and liberty. And the classical part is to distinguish us from modern liberals who actually don't believe so much in liberty. Right. They believe in certain kinds of liberty, but they want government to do more for us than I think is, is good and is effective. So libertarians tend, and I would just say that libertarianism in the United States I, I was uncomfortable when I lived in the United States, sometimes calling myself a libertarian. I'd be much more uncomfortable now. The the people who are assigned that label are even less like me than they than than say five years ago. But I think five years ago, people associated libertarianism with uh, hedonism. Libertarians want drugs to be legal. Well, I, I do too, recreational drugs. I think recreational drugs should be legal, and but I'm against taking them mostly. And I think the responsibility for restraining oneself in the face of recreational drug opportunities is for one to build character rather than to make them illegal. And in that sense, I'm a libertarian. But people would assume that if I'm a libertarian, I also yeah. think we should be taking lots yeah. of cocaine and LSD and et cetera. And I, I'm, I'm not a fan of those things uh, or even marijuana. So – I don't like the term libertarian. I like it even less today. Classical liberal is closer to my viewpoint. And I'm also a little less dogmatic than, say, most of the people, even in my youth, who were libertarians. The classical liberal tradition, which is the tradition of Adam Smith and Hayek and, and Milton Friedman, is less dogmatic. It's more a little more nuanced, uh, a little more flexible than most libertarians. I mean, a lot of libertarians I knew growing up didn't think the government should build roads, that roads should be private. And uh, you can make an argument for it. It's not a, it's an interesting viewpoint. It's not the hill I want to die on. It's okay that government builds roads. They build too many. Yes. When I, when I used to be a, a more hardcore libertarian in my youth and people would say, Oh, you think there should be private roads? And I would proudly say yes. And they would say, but if they did that, there'd be like a road to everybody's house. And I would say, you mean like now? <laughs> the government builds the roads and does it with great joy to reward contractors and others. And yes, they build roads everywhere, probably too many. So, What changed in the last five years to push you further away from libertarians? You know, I couldn't put my finger on it, but every time I read something about the Libertarian Party, it's frightening. I don't like it. I couldn't pull out of my memory what those things are. There's still plenty of people in, in America who I think would call themselves Libertarians that I respect and care about and care and have great affection for their intellectual honesty and, and, and opinions. So uh, again, these are, these are really marketing questions more yeah. than questions of belief. So to change tack a little bit, a few years ago, you wrote a piece in which you argued that we should all live like artists. Now, that is an unusual thing for an economist to say, or at least it feels like it. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Why should we all live like artists? Well, that's, um, that's an idea I wrote about in my last book called Wild Problems. And what I meant by that is that in my limited experience as a, as a writer and in my limited experience of the creative process that physical material artists, painters, sculptors, and others do, uh, they don't go in with a plan. Now, there are exceptions to this. There, there are great writers who build a full outline 
and then just fill it in. And their writing is to respond to this vision that they have of how this thing is going to look. But in my experience, and, and many others that who talk about it, poets, better writers than I am, artists, physical artists, painters, sculptors, they don't know what they're going to produce. They decide and learn about what they want to produce in the process of producing it. A great artist, the work starts to feel like it has a life of its own. And I've experienced that a few times in my life. You know, I use the example in my book. I'm not going to get it exactly right because I've I had a earlier version in my mind and then I wrote checked it and I I wrote it more accurately. So if you want to get it exactly right, you can look it up. But the it's a quote from William Faulkner. Faulkner said something like the following. You know, it's easy to write a novel. You just um you just follow your characters around with a notebook and write down what they say. And what he meant by that was once you start to build a character in a, in a novel, you start to get constrained in what they can do and, and what they can say, and they take on a life of their own. And it's an amazing experience when you inhabit that world. And rather than say, here's what I'm going to have this character do, you discover what the character is going to do, and you learn as you're writing it, of what they're capable of and what they want, and they're almost alive. And I suggest when I said you should live like an artist, what I meant by that was some people have a plan for their life. They're going to go to med school, which means they're going to major in biology, and they're going to have to work really hard because med school is very competitive. It's hard to get in. And so they're going to do that, and then they're going to get a residency, and then there'll be a intern somewhere, and then they're going to take their specialty, and they'll move to the hospital that's the best one they can get into, and then they're going to take care of people for the rest of their life and make a pleasant amount of money, and they'll die. Uh, a lot of people live that way. And I use the example in my book of a vacation. A lot of people vacation like that. You build an itinerary, and you know what you're going to do on every single day in advance. And you take the trip, and you fulfill the, the itinerary that you've planned in advance, and you enjoy your trip. And what I suggest in, in, is an alternative to live like an artist is to say, you know what, I'm going to learn a lot while I'm walking around Rome, and I, 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 I don't want to plan in advance what I do and hold myself to it. I'm going to explore what Rome has to offer me as I'm walking or as I'm eating or as I'm viewing. And if we live that way, not just on our trips, but in our actual life, Instead of having a plan or what, how it's going to turn out, what I'm going to do, I'm going to discover it through the process of living. I'm going to find out what speaks to me because I'm going to be a different person in 20 years than I am now. And if I decide now that 20 years from now I'm going to be do this, that, and the other, maybe I'll miss something really spectacular. Just like in Rome, if I'm not careful, I'll miss the opportunity for that guy who's singing uh, arias on the street. You know, I'm walking along with my wife, and there's a guy singing Nessun Dorma, and it happens to be my dad's favorite song. And I'm thinking about my dad, and he's really quite good, this amateur that's singing there. And I'm glad I didn't hurry off to do something else that I'd put down on my itinerary before I went. And that was a glorious moment. And a lot of life, I think, is like that. Again, it depends on your character, your personality, your skills. But I've enjoyed the surprises maybe as much or more than the things I thought I was going to do. So take a lesson from the great artists learn about who you are and follow yourself around with a pencil and piece of paper and don't always uh, pre-script everything in advance because you'll be surprised and you'll be the better for it. Have you lived both sides of that or have you always been more like the artist? No, I live both sides. I didn't plan to get a PhD in economics from you know youth, but there was a point in my life where I thought, you know, I think this is a good career path for me. So I did that. I, I did all the things I needed to do that I was making fun of doctors and pre-med students before I, you know, I, I took linear algebra, even though it's really hard. And I took, uh, other math classes to prepare for graduate school and statistics courses. And I did the work and I was, you know, had some success. So I kept pushing and I did it and, and I enjoyed it. It wasn't like, I, I mean, a lot of people, I think go to law school, even though they hate it and they hate it after they go to law school and they hate it while they're a lawyer. But their parents expected it or that was their plan. So they just keep going. I feel so sorry for some of those folks. Um, but I don't feel sorry for me. I love being an economist and 
but I was able to do a bunch of things that most economists don't do. And I took them as they came along. I wrote some novels, I animated a poem. I wrote two rap songs with the filmmaker, John Popola. Uh, and then I became a, po a podcaster. This, those were things I didn't plan on. Um, you were kind to say I was spent some effort at trying to explain complicated things to people. That wasn't my plan. My plan was to be an academic economist who wrote great articles and won a Nobel Prize. Didn't happen. Turned out I wasn't that good at it. It wasn't like I shifted gears like an artist and the, the world told me that I was better at some other things, but I found those other things and I was, I embraced them. So it's, um, you know, it's part of its serendipity. It's to, to look around for what, be open to the possibility of something you're not planning, not prepared for that comes along. Some of the best moments in my life have been those serendipitous moments, not just career and big picture things, but small, tiny things when I've said yes to something that didn't seem like it was important, but turned out to be, you know, wonderful. So yeah, I think most of us live both sides. I think we have to have some planning in our life and some itineraries. And at the same time, I think it's very powerful to be open to possibility. Outside of economics and your work, what are you into? What would you do if you could no longer do your Econ Talk podcast and you were instructed hmm. by some higher power, you have to do nothing henceforth but indulge your passions. What are they? Photography. Um, I love photography and I don't get to spend enough time on it because I have those other passions that I'm still working at. Reading. I read, uh, I don't know, I don't count anymore, but 25, 30 books a year for Econ Talk, maybe sometimes more, sometimes less. They're not always the books I wish I could read. I'm reading um, a shocking book, shocking in the sense I enjoy it so much more than I thought I would. It's called Siobo There Below. I think that's the title. I have trouble remembering the title. It's by Laszlo Horkai, a Hungarian uh, writer of fiction that I can't believe I enjoy it. I love it. Uh, it's... Um, now, there'll be a chapter of 25, 30 pages. It'll consist of four sentences. They're long sentences, many, many pages. And I usually don't like books like that. And it's grabbed me and I wish I could spend more time on it. My worry is that if I had a lot more time, I would just spend that much more time on Twitter, which by the evidence, now called X, by the evidence seems to be something I am deeply passionate about. So it's a compulsive drug. Everybody has different ones, I think, on the internet. Um, so I don't know if I'd really uh, spend that time as beautifully as I'd like to think I would, writing poetry, taking photographs, <laughs> and uh, reading Hungarian fiction writers I'd never read until I turned 69 years old. But who knows? That day's not here. I like to work. It's, um, it's not romantic. I don't think I'll be much of a retiree in the No, well, that's why I asked you as sense. I did. I said if a higher power ordered you not to work, because <laughs> I sense that you like to work. Yeah, I, I like to sing, and I, I like Jewish thought. I'd like to immerse myself more in that. There, there are a lot of hobbies I would like to spend a little more time on, but I might be fooling myself. Uh, I might really just like to work. And, and i that's a, uh, a very different thing this year than it was five years ago, than it was five years before that for me. I spend a lot of my time, until this war came along, I spent a lot of my time working with my colleagues to try to make this college in Israel better. It's, it's great. I wish it were better. And uh, that's an entrepreneurial opportunity I'd never had before to work as an academic administrator, a phrase I despise. Um, it, it does not resonate with me, but I've enjoyed it because maybe we're small and there's a lot that can be accomplished and I feel like we've done great things in a very short period of time together. So I've spent a lot more time and mental energy on that than I did on my traditional quote, work of writing and other things um, in the past. So what work is may be different for me in a few years. Maybe it'll be photography, maybe it'll be something else, but it's, um, I like to create. I like to produce stuff. It's, I like to achieve things. It's very, very, very gratifying. You're going to stay in Israel or is it plan to come back to the U.S.? Plans to stay for now. I, I, I wouldn't say I'll stay forever. You never know. Um, I'm shocked at how little interest I have in returning to the U.S. right now. I have friends and family there who I love and miss and 
and enjoy seeing when when there's not a war on. Um, I, the American project is less glittering for me than it was 10, 20 years ago. It seems a bit frayed at the seams, um, certainly for Jews, uh, but even for everybody else. Um, I mean, is it really going to be a Trump-Biden 2024 election? I mean, that is, if you scripted that, you'd be laughed at in the in the studio. I, I find that alarming. I just wrote a magazine piece about that, and I pointed out that I'm very used to hearing from my friends in England that America is crazy when I don't think that it is. So I hear that the First Amendment's a bit extreme, or that Americans are too religious, or that the Second Amendment should be repealed, or that the economy in the United States is too free market or there's a lack of an NHS. And I invariably say to them, you know what, I actually love America. I like all of those things. And I don't think that they should change. But recently, the barb that I get sent is, it's not really going to be Trump and Biden again. And I find myself saying, you know what, I'm with you on this one. You you want to <laughs> criticize the United States caustically on that? Do it. Because yeah, I, I share your disbelief and I live here. On the other hand, I don't think the leadership of the country known as England has really distinguished itself no. that much in the last few turns either. It's not just an American problem, the fact that democracy is struggling there to produce the outcomes that we might think are more healthy. It's a general problem. I don't think it's unrelated to the social media stuff we were talking about earlier in the media generally. There are a lot of foundational aspects of the American political and economic system and the West generally that are, I think, under attack. Unless those are shored up, I think there's going to be a tough time coming. Can you give me an example of one? Do you mean an example of something that needs shoring up? Yeah. Well, freedom of speech would be one of them. Uh, Respect for people's viewpoints that aren't the same as yours. Uh, What we might call civil discourse. I'm talking to a lot of... uh, American college students recently, uh, and the Jewish ones tell me that you know, life on campus at Phone the Blank, an illustrious school with a great reputation, is scary. Scary? Scary? Really? Yeah, scary. Something's gone wrong with the American university system. Forget the Jews. Take everybody. The inability to have nuanced, thoughtful conversation with people you disagree with about the great questions of the human experience. That's gone from most college campuses. Something has gone terribly wrong there. Can you have a great country? Can you have a great political leadership? Can you have a great culture if your educational system is as broken as the American K through 12 and college system is right now? No, I don't think you can. I don't know what's going to come next if it stays the way it is, but it needs shoring up. It needs a reboot where people embrace what it was meant to do, which was to educate. It's not what it is anymore. It's a different animal. Now, footnote, in STEM fields, mostly, the critique I just made is not true. If you study engineering in the United States, if you study hard sciences, you work hard, you become a master at a certain level of a discipline and you can contribute to the world. That's not so true in the rest of the university. And that's and given that the proportion of the young people in the country now has grown to the level it has attending university, it's deeply alarming. Uh, it is a system that is um, ripe for a remake. So we'll see. Obviously a lot of people are trying. We have the University of Austin, just trying to recreate something that was once precious. It's one place. It's a start, but I'm very pessimistic. So that'd be one example. The media is the second example. The outrage, what I call the outrage epidemic, the, the excitement that people have to disparage other people and and see them as not just disagreeing with them, but evil. Can't have a democracy that, if that's the case. Um, it's not just an American problem. It's a British problem. Brexit was an example of that. We had it here in Israel with the judicial reform issue where people on both sides were very close to a civil war before uh, October 7th. And I don't say that lightly. I think we were actually close to a, a civil war of the country pulling itself apart. That may still happen in the aftermath of whatever, however this thing ends here. So um, 
I think a lot of the West, and I put Israel in the West because of its democracy and its respect for education and tradition, we're in trouble. Uh, I don't know if we're going to make it. Well, that's a good jumping off point for the final question that I usually ask my guests, which is whether they're pessimistic or optimistic. You said you don't know if we're going to make it, but if I push you, do you think we will? If by we you mean the West, uh, the enlightened uh, West, I I do think we'll make it. I, I think even though I have voiced some pessimism, I do think that there are a lot of strengths the, of the West uh, that are easy to ignore and forget, dismiss, that are just harder to see. Israel's a good example. On October 6th, if you had asked an Israeli how prepared is Israel for an attack, they would have said, oh, unprepared. Our pilots, many of them have refused to um, train. The pilots on reserve have refused to stay in fighting shape because they disagree with the government over judicial reform. Many people are thinking of leaving the country. They don't recognize what they're, th- they're worried their country will become if things don't change. They're soft. They're the TikTok generation. And um, boy, were they wrong, those pessimists. <laughs> we were vulnerable. We were unprepared. But the resolve that's here and the willingness of people to fight and die for their country despite spending a lot of time on TikTok, is pretty powerful. And it's true people were thinking about leaving, but a lot of them came back to face danger here. They run to danger here in Israel. They don't run away from it. And I think, well, we'll see. So there are a lot of strengths that are still there. Some of those strengths are cultural. They're not easily discerned. They, lay below the, they lie below the surface, and they, they rise up and uh, roar when... Uh, and the time is right. So maybe maybe there's some grounds for optimism there. All right. Russ Roberts, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Great talking to you. Enjoyed it. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Russ Roberts. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to the ancient Egyptians for inventing the number system. And we'll see you next week.